Doing the impossible is not something you make happen. It's something that you allow to happen. After conducting over 10,000 personal and group coaching sessions over the last decade, author and personal coach Jason Dries has unlocked the simple yet effective formula to accept and create success in your life on the most basic, instinctive level. In his latest book, Do the Impossible, Jason gives readers access to the same life-changing principles he provides in his personal coaching sessions. Ready to embrace success as a state of being? In this exclusive listener offer, get your copy of Do the Impossible for 50% off from the publishers at Bigger Pockets. To get your copy of Do the Impossible for 50% off any format, go to www.biggerpockets.com impossible50. That's 50% off any format, www.biggerpockets.com impossible50. Pay attention to your peers. Pay attention to your peers. Your peers know you better than anybody. Your peers can give you honest feedback. Your peers can save you. And boy, I've been saved from my mistakes many, many times by, you know, the commander on the next destroyer over who might have said, hey, Jim, you're getting a little out ahead of your skis on point A, B, or C. Listening to your peers is another great lesson of leadership that I took from my father. Welcome to Armbrand with Donnie Deutsch. I am Donnie Deutsch, and this is the show that is dedicated to a simple premise that everybody and everything today is a brand. Every athlete, every celebrity, every business person, every business, every corporation, every product, every politician, all brands. And a brand is a set of values. We do two things here. First, we do a big brand interview about their own personal brand. Today, we have a special, special, special guest, former four-star admiral James Stravitas, uh, former supreme commander of NATO in Europe, uh, an American hero. He's got incredible stories and incredible wisdom to share. So we're going to be talking to the Admiral in a little bit. And also we do our Brands of the Week, where we look at the brands that are up and down, who's driving the zeitgeist. And with, with me this week doing that, backed by popular demand, Emily Jane Fox, national correspondent of Vanity Fair, best-selling author of the book Born Rich about the Trump family. And thanks for doing this again, kid. Oh, my pleasure. Oh, my pleasure. <laughs> Let's get right into it. First, brand down for Biden. Uh, his approval rating is at 39%, but more importantly, and this is an AP poll, that eight in 10 Americans think the country is going in the wrong direction. Only 33% like what he's doing on the economy. Um, he just, he can't, there's nothing good that he does that stick to him. You know, I could argue everything he's done with NATO has been Herculean. I could, yes, we have inflation, but the job numbers are still the lowest. But he, the, the American consumer, the American public ain't buying. Well, I've been thinking about this a lot, and I'm so curious you're taking this because you're obviously an expert in this. But uh, I think a large part of this is they're not out there. There's no events. There are very few speeches. They have they have completely left an, an empty void, and other people have filled the vacuum. Right now, we're in a different situation. But if you six months ago, the economy was yeah. actually like very strong. It was the hottest sure. economy that we've had in a really long time. And yet people still felt this way that you you just cited in those Part polls. Part of and, the reason is, yeah. is the his weakness is the very thing that you're talking about. He's not out there because he doesn't come across with charisma and strength. He comes across old, and I don't mean that to be ageist. Mm. So I think that that's by design. But to your point, that's really hurting. But the thing that I think hurts him most is that, is the visceral thing, is the, you know, I, I just was saw a clip of Obama, you know, talking to somebody, I forgot what it was, and then you just, you just contrast the two in terms of 
energy and charisma and dynamism. And I think that this president, although a good man in many ways doing a decent job, does not have that. Well, I, I think uh, perception is the reality, right? So even if the economy was the hottest ticket in town and people perceived it to not be, then that would be the reality and the economy is not the hottest ticket in town. It, it worries me going into November and that brings me to my my brand up that I want to start with. Um, and that is the Pennsylvania gubernatorial election. Have you been paying attention to this at all? I sure have. Okay. I sure have. So I interviewed Josh Shapiro last week, who is the Democratic candidate running. And I, I don't know if this is an upper and down. I think it lies somewhere in between. Um, Josh Shapiro is the state's attorney general. And uh, he is now running against a crazy person. I think I can say that. It just Mastriano. as an objective yeah. fact. Yeah. Um, a, 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 a Trumper with a capital T, someone who believes in the, in the big lie. He stormed yeah. the Capitol and yet he got 40% of the Republican vote. And I know that it's a primary. And so uh, fringes tend to vote more in the primaries than uh, people who are more in the middle of the road. Um, and, and many, many reporters and strategists and people on the ground were saying that this is a gift to Josh Shapiro because he's now running against someone who's incredibly mm -hmm. extreme. And yet, people in the state are kind of worried. And so I don't know if it's an up or a down here. Yeah, I give it an up. Shapiro's a great candidate, and I'm sure you saw that interview with him. And I do think Mastriano is, is too extreme. I mean, that's the problem the Republicans have in the primaries when they start to go too hard right, and they do not uh, put out what I call digestible candidates. So I think that's a brand up for, for, for um, Josh, but with a little scary note to it. Mm. I want to throw one back to you. Uh, Brand up for workers' leverage. This is interesting from Axios. For every employee, there's 1.7 jobs out there. Mm. So basically, there's almost two jobs for every person looking for a job. And what that's translated to in research, workers are taking longer lunches. They feel entitled to, to kind of really run the show, whether they're coming back to work or not, how they're coming back to work. But workers in my lifetime have never had the leverage they have now. It's incredible. I mean, I used to be, in my former life, I was a, a labor reporter when I was first out of journalism school. Wow, at CNN, that's right. It was so not the climate. I mean, it was this was like right after post-recession and uh, this was the beginning of the fight for 15, the minimum wage protests at all the fast food and retail stores. Um, this is a crazy, a crazy shift in, in workers' rights. And it's, it's an incredible thing. It's an incredible time to be someone who values themselves. But what a and what a cultural shift for bosses and employers. It's in, in not a lot of time, this is a completely uh, 180 shift. You wonder from a 100,000 feet up from a macro point of view, how will that affect the economy? Mm. Obviously, the job, keep the job numbers low. But overall, if employees have that much power, does that mean productivity goes down? I don't mean to be cynical, but we'll have to watch. It's an interesting, interesting thing to watch. Well, particularly as people work from home, I don't think we have enough enough data yet because it's still so new. But um, you've definitely heard employers talking about productivity not being as high with people at home. But if you have these people who are able to say, well, if you don't want me, then I'll leave. Or if you don't like these things, if you don't want me to work from home four days a week, then I'm going to find a job elsewhere. It's a, it's a really uh, cataclysmic shift here. I want to talk about another kind of worker. Um, it's a little bit different. But Kellyanne Conway is out with a new book this week. Have you been paying attention to this at all? I hope no, not. No, but I'd like to. First of all, do we have a brand up or brand down? For oh, down. I mean, instant down. Okay. <laughs> we just have to make it official. Instant okay. down. Um, did you even have to ask? 
it's so weird that this book is coming out now because it's a true who cares for me. Um, right. But she seems to, uh, in typical Kellyanne fa- uh, fashion, to really be throwing everybody under the bus except for Trump, which I find fascinating. Yeah, you know, what? all these heroes now that are coming out with the tell-all books and their explanation, because obviously you ask them, well, all these things were wrong. Why did you stay? And they, well, I was still better than the next person they would put in there. That's the defense. But all of these people, Esper was out with a book a couple of weeks ago. We can, you know, Bolton, we can go through the list of every one of them cashing in, tell-all right now, but not when they're in office. And a lot of it makes me sick. It's so lame. And also, if you are someone who's read, who is curious about what's in Kelly Yen's book, like I, I advise you to seek help. Okay. <laughs> I love it. Hey, let me give you one. And I'm interested from a woman's perspective. Mm. Okay, brand, huge brand up for Pete Davidson. Now, this week on Saturday, this weekend on Saturday Night Live, four of their cast members, and, and the biggest names were Kate McKinnon and Pete Davidson, announced, not announced, so they did skits or things that they were their, their run was coming to an end. And as far as I'm concerned, Pete Davidson has been a breakout star the level of a, will be, the level of a Will Farrell. There are every mm. five or 10 years, one comes along, we know who they are, obviously. We can go through the list of Saturday Night Live people. But something about him has just not only connected with the American public, is connected with, with the ladies of the world who find him incredibly appealing. Will you explain to me a woman's take on Pete Davidson? Uh, we talk about this a lot in my house. Uh, because if there's <laughs> one thing I care about more than anything in the world, it's, it's reality star relationships. So um, I think, I say this as someone who's married to a professional comedy writer. There's something about a funny guy, right? They, not only are they incredibly funny and that's very fun to be with, but they make you feel funny. Uh, People who are really funny tend to be really generous laughers. And if someone is laughing at you and making you feel like the funniest version of yourself, there's something that makes you feel good about yourself in being with them. So I I understand that. It seems like he's a very confident guy, which I think is a thing. Um, Is it confident? Is that that a a code word for something else that we're going to get into about people? I'm just going to say confident with a capital C. Well, I'm going to just throw it in because it has to... There's there was a art, bunch of articles written that he has what's called BDE and that uh, that's an acronym for Big Dick Energy and the rumor is he's very 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 well endowed and that <sighs> seems to be part of his mysterious appeal to women. I'm, I'm just reporting the news. I'm, I, I'm not I saying that. I have the case. red rosy cheeks. Um, <laughs> but I what's interesting to me is Pete Davidson is incredibly famous and I think he is a breakout star. But having nothing really to do with his work, more to do with his personal life. And the women he's dated, obviously he's with Kim Kardashian now, but he was with Ariana Grande and Kate Beckinsale and all a number of very famous, very beautiful women. And so this is, it's fascinating to me that you're seeing this sort of pop in a public person's persona for who they There's something else about him also. There's something else about him. And he's talked a lot about his mental issues. Mm-hmm. And I think he's been diagnosed with borderline person. He's very vulnerable. Totally. He really is kind of comes out there as this guy that, I'm this guy that's got it going on and confident, but yet I need to be taken care of at the same time. Let this be a lesson to men that you can talk about your feelings and still get Kim Kardashian. Okay. Uh, I want to bring up another thing. I don't know. Are you familiar with um, the old Nike ad with Mars Blackman, Spike Lee? No. Okay. It was, I think, one of the greatest ads of all time. This was in the 80s, and it was Spike Lee and Michael Jordan. And Spike Lee was playing a character named Mars Blackman from the movie She's Gotta Have It. And 
it was, it got to be the shoes, money. It's got to be the shoes. The whole thing, he's holding up shoes. Is, I'm not going to do it justice. I want everybody to, to kind of use the Google machine and go look at it. But Nike is bringing it back. It's Nike's 50th anniversary, and they're bringing back an updated version of the commercial. And it was a very breakthrough commercial because it, it, it got credit for the advancement of uh, really African-American representation in advertising. It really became kind of a bedrock founding type of commercial for Nike, and they're bringing, it, bringing back a new version of it. So I'm going to give that a brand. Cool. I'm, I'm going to go watch it. And I also think that everything Nike's doing around this anniversary is really cool. They've clearly put a lot of thought into it. And I'm, I'm here for all of it. I have, I'm going to switch notes totally here. Uh, a yes. brand down for Jif, peanut butter. Have you seen any no. of this? Oh, there's, no. a, there's like what a happened? major Jif recall for salmonella. Oy. Nothing scares me more than food recalls. I don't know why I've never had salmonella before in my entire life. But right. anytime I see something, I see a CNN headline or a push alert that there's a recall in food, like my gut instinct is like, and I want to throw everything out in my pantry. So, Brand down for Jif. Jif doesn't feel good for the world of peanut is, butter. Is Skippy okay? Is Skippy peanut butter still I'm nothing okay? safe. If Jif's not okay, then who knows? <laughs> I'm going to give the, the Converse brand up to that. And I know Ooh. this is going to be near and dear to your heart. Brand up for Big Macs. Ugh, there's hate. a gentleman, um, what's his name? Uh, Donald Gorski, who's kind of a hero of mine. He, for 50 years, has been eating a Big Mac every single day. And it's his anniversary, and he's eaten a total of 32,000 and then some Big Macs and his Guinness Book of World Record. And those are the kind of heartwarming stories I like to share God with bless. our audience. And God it just bless. makes just makes me <laughs> that makes me think of something that I wasn't gonna bring up, but now I'm gonna bring it up. And I have no idea if this is true, but I saw something on the internet yesterday, so I guess that immediately makes it true. Uh, that a two-year-old child unlocked his mom phone, mom's phone and ordered 31 hamburgers or something like that. Yes, it was the that's, best thing that's I've read a true this story. That's it. I like I like the way you talk around. I want to throw one one out to you that is going to have real relevance to you in terms of uh, obviously your experience writing writing for Vanity Fair and and other other places about magazines. That there was a rumor that People Magazine is going to stop coming out in print. Uh, their circulation has went from three and a half to two and a half million. You have other magazines like Oprah's Magazine and Marie Claire have gone away with their hard issues. And to me, if People Magazine ever goes away as a magazine, that means the magazines are done. I mean, if you if you kind of dig up an archaeological find and say, what does a magazine in the United States look like in the in the 20th and 21st century? It would be People Magazine. Give me people or give me death. I, I mean, <laughs> there's nothing better. I, I just have such a such nostalgia for it. I would go over to my grandmother's house every week. She was a subscriber. It's a weekly magazine, which better than that. Um, and so the fact that they could stop printing is terrible. I mean, look, it's a sign of the times. I work in a magazine. I love magazine, but it is not a medium that is necessarily made for this era. I think people will always love a magazine. There's something about the the hand feel, about being able to turn a page, about being able to come back to it, a dog ear a page. I hope you're right. Um, I hope you're right. You know, there, there's a, a real quality to a print product, but, you know, we live in the age of the internet and everything's tricky. I, I got one more for, oh yeah, I got go, one more go, for go. you. No, you go first. Go well, first. I was just going to talk about monkeypox. I don't even know if we want to go there. Yeah, we got to talk about monkeypox. You know, it, it it it's very serious. It sounds like it's a breakfast cereal, monkeypox, but obviously it's not. Just kind of get us up to speed on the. I, you have to give it a brand down because it's, it's not. Oh, a good actually, thing. like yeah. I kind of like the name of it. I'm going to brand up the branding right. of monkeypox. Brand down <laughs> monkeypox itself. Biden said over the weekend, this is something he's seriously concerned about. I've heard public health experts say, "Don't everyone go crazy," um, but it seems like. And other things on the horizon on top of COVID, which seems to still be everywhere. It feels like everyone I know is yeah, exposed or getting it. it. Yeah. Um, 
What did we do to deserve monkeypox on top of COVID? I don't know. I'm going to give you one more. And this is because I like to talk to you about anything millennial or Gen Z. Mm. Seven in 10 Gen Z adults said they'd rather have pets than kids. This is a thousand pet owners. 57% said that they would rather have their pet than a sibling, particular sibling. And 81% said that millennial pet owners said that they love their pet more than at least one family member. Uh, yeah. Obviously, you, I, I'm not sharing too much. You recently had a, a beautiful little girl, so you're not part, you're in, the, you're in the three in 10. Yeah. But any reaction to your brethren? I mean, you and I both love dogs. We both love our dogs. I get it, right? I mean, you also I have, have to six realize- for the record. Yeah, I know. You have, and Donnie has a zoo. He's like a football team full of dogs. You have to understand the particular set of circumstances. I can't speak to Gen Z, but I can speak to millennials. Um, millennials inherited a really- shitty world. When we were graduating from college, it was the depths of the recession. There were no jobs. If you did get a job, they were just really poorly compensated. We have all the climate stuff. We have all the political unrest. We have all the protests and all the stuff. Um, so I understand why a lot of people do not want to have children in, as a millennial. I mean, the amount of student debt, the, the rents, the cost of living in cities, it's, it's a really terrible time to be a young adult who's not established. So I understand that. Um, I also think that pets are uncomplicated and families are complicated. So I get, I get all of these <laughs> that's things. Love that. I think they're just happy you show up. They just they, You just show up and they're happy, particularly What's dogs. better than that? Hey, Emily, you are the best. I thank you so much for sharing today. We're going to now go to my interview with General James Trevitas, uh, former four-star admiral, former Supreme Commander of, of NATO in Europe, uh, a brilliant American hero. You're going to really, really enjoy this. He's got a new book out. Take a listen. What is that sound? That's the sound of success. That's the sound of Shopify. Uh, it's another sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Simply put, if you have anything to sell online, you want to do it with Shopify. It's the platform designed for anyone to sell anywhere, giving entrepreneurs the resources once reserved for big business, customized to your needs, with a great-looking online store that brings your idea to life and tools to manage day-to-day -day and drive sales. Shopify believes in liberating commerce for all because entrepreneurship has the power to drive communities forward and commerce can be good for everybody. Get started by building and customizing your online store with no coding or design experience. Gain knowledge and confidence with extensive resources to help you succeed. Plus, with 24-7 support, you're never alone. More than a store, Shopify grows with you. This is Possibility, powered by Shopify. Go to shopify.com slash Donnie all lowercase for a free 14-day trial and get full access to Shopify's entire suite of features. Start selling on Shopify today. Go to shopify.com slash Donnie. That's all lowercase right now. Shopify.com slash Donnie. Okay, do you have an account with Coinbase or are you thinking of opening one? Do you own any Bitcoin, Ethereum, Cardano, or any other cryptocurrency? Well, I want to talk to you about Alto IRAs. That's A-L-T-O IRAs. Crypto may represent the future of money, but it's one, of the, and it's one of the most exciting opportunities to come around. But what about taxes on crypto? When you do anything in life, there's always a better way to do it. You might already be investing in crypto, but did you know that you can trade Bitcoin, Ethereum, and over 80 other cryptocurrencies in a tax-advantaged IRA? Listen to this. With Alto Crypto IRA, you can trade crypto like Bitcoin and avoid or defer taxes. So this is going to help you and save money, guys. This is where you kind of either, either avoid or defer the taxes, get into investing in crypto and do it in a tax advantage retirement account. Altos Crypto IRA is the easy way to get crypto into an IRA. Trade all you want without the tax headache. Create an account in just a few minutes. Invest as little as $10, no setup charges. Secure 24-7 through Altos integration with Coinbase. 
80 plus coins available, including Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Cardano. Listen, this you got to do this, guys. This is really, really, really a big deal. There's multiple ways to fund your account. Make a cash contribution, transfer cash from an existing IRA, or roll over an old 401k. Ready to take your investments to the next level? Diversify like the pros and trade without tax headaches? Open an Alto Crypto IRA with as little as $10. Just go to altoira.com slash brand. That's A-L-T-O-I-R-A dot com slash brand. Start investing in cryptocurrency today. Go to altoira.com slash brand. I am thrilled at today's guest. He is a true American hero. I'm going to have to read a little bit because his introduction is going to be one of the longest introductions I've ever done. Your resume is ridiculous. <laughs> Admiral uh, James Trevitas, uh, he is a retired four-star admiral. He is the former Allied, Supreme Allied Commander of NATO. Um, he is a best-selling author, uh, 13 books, I believe. His new book we're going to talk a lot about is To Risk It All, Nine Conflicts and the Crucible of Decision. Um, he is the uh, Chief International Diplomacy and National Security Analyst for NBC News and MSNBC. I get to work with him on Morning Joe. He is the Vice Chair of Global Affairs and Mining, Managing Director of the Global Investment Firm Carlisle Group. He is the Chair of the Board of Trustees of the Rockefeller Foundation. He's fought and commanded in three wars. And I thank you for being here today, sir. It's my honor to be with you, Donnie. And uh, I got to say, I always enjoy our segments together on Morning Joe. That's a it's a wonderful, fun time. Isn't it great? I, I so enjoy, I get high doing it. I, I just, it, it, they've really built a marvelous thing there. And, yeah. you know, it's been on 15 years now. It's incredible. And and now four hours. I mean, I don't know how those guys do it. I don't know. Joe and Mika have become dear friends of mine. And I don't know how they do that every morning. Yeah, that's a lot of energy to put out there, especially when, you know, you're waking up at, what, 3, 3.30 in the morning to kick it off at 6. That's a lot of work. My hat's off to them. So we're going to have a lot to talk about today. Uh, I want to just start with the Ukrainian war. And something in, in the most uh, basic thing to the average person out there, you'd go, okay, if we wound the clock back and Russia's going to invade Ukraine, and you go, okay, this will be over in, in a week. Explain uh, as best as you can why it has been such a fight, why Ukraine has been able to, in many ways, embarrass Russia at this point. Um, I'll give you three things on the Russian side and then the one big thing on the Ukrainian side. On the Russian side, uh, the first thing is not glamorous, Donnie, but it's, it's germane. It is a terrible logistics. The Russians just have proven utterly incompetent at doing the basics, getting the food, the fuel, the ammunition, the means of heating, the communications forward to their troops. We say in the military, amateurs can worry about the strategy. The professionals are focused on logistics. So point one, bad logistics. On the Russian side, point two, uh, good old-fashioned bad leadership. Um, here, the Russians don't have that solid core of, if you will, middle management on a battlefield. Our sergeants, our chief petty officers, that's unknown in Russia. It's not in their culture. And as a result, there's just a lot of bad leadership going on. And third and finally, over on their side of the coin, um, we see that um, they have proven um, to rely overly on these war crimes. And that has generated enormous negative response from the world. It's helped unify. So that's kind of the Russian set of failures. Um, over on the Ukrainian side, as I promised, one big thing, and it's uh, Zelensky. It's his heroism because he personifies that fighting spirit. Think Churchill in World War II. So I 
for one, uh, have been very uh, happy with how this thing has gone thus far, and that's an odd word to use. But compared to where we were at the beginning of this thing, where it looked like Russia really was going to initially run the table, it's a combination of their weaknesses, the will of Zelensky, and of course, the Uber cap on all that, the chapeau and it all is the logistics, the weapons we put in the hands of the Ukrainians. You've written it, it, Putin doesn't seem to have an off-ramp here. So how do we prognosticate? How, how does this play out? I mean, obviously, you don't have a crystal ball there, but you, you see the moving pieces. Let's play a little game of Stratego here. How does this go? Yeah, I'm going to start with three words. I don't know. <laughs> I, I love who- when experts say that. <laughs> you, get, you get instant no. credibility with that one. Well, I'll tell you, anybody who says they know how this one is going to end does not understand that war is the most unpredictable of all human activities, much worse than dating, for example. It's uh, you never know how it's going to come out. And here what I would say with uh, modest assurance, um, I'd say it's a two in three chance, uh, Donnie, that we're going to end up with kind of what we started with, which is to say the Russians will still be in control of that chunk of the Southeast. They will have picked up a few extra pieces from your Stratego board. They will have destroyed the city of Mariupol. They'll probably get a little tiny chunk out of Donetsk and Luhansk, these other provinces nearby. But it's going to kind of go back to where it started. The good news is that the rest of Ukraine, which is what existed status quo ante, Um, will be uh, free, independent. Zelensky will still be in charge. And, you know, life is compared to what? And compared to what we could be looking at right now, which might have been a Russian sweep across the entire country, decapitating the regime, compared to that, it's not a terrible deal. I'll close on this by saying, despite my just saying it's not a terrible deal, everyone will hate the deal. And don't forget, Putin will hate the deal because he will uh, have failed in his principal objective. Zelensky will certainly hate the deal because he will not have fully expelled the Russians. I just think that's going to be a bridge too far. And the West will hate the deal because to get the deal done, we'll have to end up backing down somewhat on those sanctions. But the bottom line, uh, Russia will be weakened. Ukraine will sail on and rebuild. We got plenty of Russian cash and our banks to rebuild a lot of Ukraine, that's not the worst outcome in the world. I think that's a two and three chance. The other one in three is a wide spectrum of possibilities. You mentioned Zelensky and, and you you talked about him as a leader. You, you've written a lot about leadership and character and the distinction between the two. And, and talk about that and talk about where how do we, how do we look at Putin through those lenses? Um, leadership is this enormous door that swings in the world. Leadership is influencing others to do what you will. And a great leader, someone like Franklin Delano Roosevelt, that big door of leadership swings. But I would say somebody like Pol Pot, the dictator of Cambodia, is a good leader in the sense that he he led his country. He got people to do his bidding as horrific as it was. What makes a difference is that tiny hinge that the big door of leadership swings on. And that hinge is character. It's character. It's what's in the human heart. And here it tells us that FDR is a leader with great character. Pol Pot is a leader with exorable character. So this brings us to Vladimir Putin. 
he's a good leader in the sense that um, he can motivate people. He has the ability to uh, to to uh, in, in, inflame his base and get them moving. Um, he has high popularity within Russia. It's diminishing a bit now, but he is an effective leader is probably the word to use. But his character, his hinge is broken. He is someone who is uh, going through the motions. Um, he is someone who has isolated himself from his followers. He is someone who uses the worst tools of war, these war crimes we're seeing in places like Busha. In other words, um, he is someone who his character is broken, even though he has the leadership skills that might have permitted him in a totally different world to lead Russia in a positive direction. He has failed and he'll go down in history as a failed Russian leader because of his character. You, you're you a voracious reader and, and you you become a student, uh, you, you student of war, you, you're, you're a product of war. Um, what Evil, something that lives within somebody like a, a Putin, what, try and explain it. Does he, as, as these war crimes are committed and as innocent civilian, he is responsible, literally his blood on his hands. Do guys like that, do they, do they think they're doing anything wrong? Do they relish in it? Is it part of their modus? Like, it's so alien to us people of just basic decency that what have you learned over the years about what goes into making a monster like that? And what, when they look in the mirror, what do they see back? I know that's a, a very difficult question to answer, but I'm just going to pose it anyway. No, it's a wonderful question. And, and, and let's put it in the context of Russia. And if you look at Russian history, you see this cycle again and again of these cosmic dice that the Russians toss. And sometimes they land on Peter the Great. And he has an expansionist view of Russia. And he wants to connect with the West. And he's part of the Enlightenment. But the other time they land on Ivan the Terrible, who tortures his son to death and is that iconoclastic um, evil person you mentioned. You toss those dice again, and one time you get Joseph Stalin, maybe the ultimate monster of the 20th century, who kills arguably 20 million of his own countrymen. Um, but the dice roll again, and you end up with Gorbachev, and you have Glasnost and Perestroika, and mm -hmm. things, things turn out better. I would submit that those dice have landed very badly for the Russians again, and someone like Putin reflects and is a product of, of the old Soviet Union. The fact that he was a KGB officer. I, you know, I always love the anecdote of uh, President Bush, uh, 43, you know, met Putin and was actually quite taken with Putin. And, and I think he said roughly, you know, I looked in his eyes and we can work with Putin. He has a soul something along those lines in his Texas twang, which I did very badly. But John McCain was then asked, well, you met with Putin, you looked in his eyes, what did you see? And McCain said, I saw three letters, KGB. Yeah. So here you have someone who is a product of that intelligence service who deeply believes that the fall of the Soviet Union was one of the worst catastrophes, was the worst catastrophe of the 20th century. Really? How about the Holocaust as another nominee, for example? Putin really became resentful and angry. And, and this gets at 
I think the heart of your question is this. Someone put a big smoking hole inside Vladimir Putin, probably when he was about eight years old. And he has spent his life trying to fill that hole with, uh, with success, with the intelligence services. And he was shown all the wrong tools. And his insecurities are what have led to his anger, his bitterness about the fall of the Soviet Union. And that has translated into this character, fatally flawed, that we've been discussing. Let, let's bring it back home. You mentioned McCain. And are we not, do we have the inability as a country now to produce people like that now with our polarized state? And we see the, the leaders, I, I, Joe Biden is a good man. I'm talking a lot about what's going on, on the Republican side. And also, a lot of what's going on on the left and the hard left, but the, the, the ability to find these people who live in what I'll call the sane middle uh, and can lead from both sides and that you can look up to as a human. We, we just seem to be going farther and farther and farther away from that. I think there still remains a pretty solid center in American politics. What has happened, in my view, is the the extremes, the 20% on both sides have gotten noisier and more powerful. And the internet, arguably the greatest invention of mankind, has also a dark side, which is that it permits these extremists to find each other and, and operate together in ways that they simply were too diffused, too diluted to do in the past. But is there still a center in American politics? I think so. Um, it, it's taking some battering here and there. And by the way, since we're on politics, I want to stipulate, as I always do, I'm an independent, a registered independent, always have been, not a Democrat, not a Republican. I was vetted for vice president by Hillary Clinton, one of six people actually vetted by the campaign. And I was offered a cabinet post by the Trump administration. I think of that, by the way, as two bullets whizzing by my head <laughs> at extremely close range. But I, I, I say it in the context that I'm not a Republican, I'm not a Democrat, I'm an American. And I think there's a lot of us out there. Yeah. And, and I'll close on this, Donnie, by saying, you know, I have two daughters who are millennials in their early 30s. They look to the left and the right. They look to the Democrats and the Republicans, and they just shake their heads yeah. at both parties. And I would say, you know, you're the, you're the political uh, thinker of the two of us, certainly. But, you know, we act like, Somewhere in the Constitution, it says, and there shall be two political parties, the Republican and the Democrat. Hey, newsflash, that's not in the Constitution. Yeah. We didn't start with Republicans or Democrats. We started with Whigs and Federalists. We had Nationalists. We've had many, many political parties in this country, including Teddy Roosevelt's um, Progressive Party. The name of his center, center-right party was the Progressive Party, which has now been kind of appropriated by the left. Is it time for another political party in this nation? I don't know. I'm not the political theorist, but I, I will tell you, in the course of our history, we've had many political parties. And um, the I think it is time we were considering some alternatives to our current system. Speaking of scary alternatives, uh, I've been speaking so much, many have, but I just, it seems to, I won't stop about it, about how tenuous our democracy is right now. Uh, as we head into the, the next elections, you've got uh, the scary thing. You've got 23 elections for Secretary of State coming up, and in all 23, there's a big lie candidate in there. 
and it is being set up right now. We, 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 we got by the last time just because of a few heroic people that wouldn't give in. How worried, because I don't think the American people are, are worried enough, should we be about the thing that we take so for granted that it is very, very in play? Yeah, I have uh, two reactions to that, and, and I'll start with the darker side of the equation. Um, I share your concern. I share, uh, I share it deeply. And I think anyone who's paying attention uh, has to share that concern. And, you know, the, the tragedy of democracy is that in the end, you elect the government you deserve. Who wrote that? Alexis de Tocqueville, 200 years ago, in the book On Democracy. And we need to avoid that tragedy. And so uh, that's the dark side of the equation. Yes, I am worried. On the more optimistic side, I, I think it's more than just a few heroic individuals. They certainly played a critical role. But I think the 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 broad spectrum of American political thought is going to continue to want democracy and want a process that protects it. And whether we go through a few more twists and turns here um, remains to be seen. But I'm not going to bet against us as a democracy. I, I feel as though, um, as we talked about a moment ago, there, there's still a 40 50, 60% kind of in the middle who don't want this democracy to go anywhere. I'm going to bet on that side of the equation, sharing your worries. I hear you. All right, well, we'll put, let's talk about the book, To Risk It All, Nine Conflicts and the Crucible of Decision. You start with uh, John Paul Jones, and it's basically a book that just outlines seven battles, seven situations, and really analyzes profiles and decision-making and courage and in risk management. And talk to us. Talk to us about the book and talk to us about why you chose the nine you chose. Yeah, the, the nine uh, crises in the book, um, I'll come to in one moment. But what got me started on this, and, and you mentioned it earlier, I've written books about leadership and books about character. I think those are two of the three big things that shape our lives. The third are the decisions we make. And if you contemplate the big decisions in your life, Donnie, You'll, you'll think of, uh, where am I going to go to school? Okay, I'm going to go to Penn. Well, where am I going to find uh, a wife? I married my, my bride. Um, when did we decide to have children? You know, those kinds sure. of decisions. When did I decide to, to really focus on the world of branding and advertising? Those kind of decisions you have time to make. You can get out your pad of paper if you're so inclined. You can write down pros and cons. You can talk to mentors, talk to your parents. Those are important decisions, vital decisions. But the decisions in this book, to risk it all, are the decisions you make under extreme pressure with no time. And I chose to use a frame of nine um, naval figures to kind of pull out those moments, like John Paul Jones deciding, I will fight on. Um, and by the way, not all of these nine decisions come out successfully, came out very successfully for, uh, for John Paul Jones. But how about Lloyd Booker, the captain of the Pueblo, who decides to surrender a ship to the North Koreans, um, spends a year tortured in captivity, um, and then is excoriated and court-martialed by the U.S. Navy. 
for giving up his ship. He's the other side of the John Paul Jones equation. These decisions, which you make under extreme pressure, I think are worth contemplating before you hit that moment. And for listeners who are saying, yeah, but I'm not in the military. I'm, I'm never going to face a moment like that. Really? How about you're 32 years old, you're a young man in great health, you're walking through a mall, and all of a sudden you hear, active shooter, active shooter. What are you going to do at that moment? Are you going to help the elders? Are you going to take a child by the hand and make sure she gets out? Or are you going to go at a dead sprint for the door? What about you're off doing one of these fun weekends and you're driving an ATV, an all-terrain vehicle, and up ahead of you on the ridge line, you see another ATV go tumbling down 60, 70 feet down the side of a cliff. This happened to me, by the way. At that moment, are you going to you know, pull out your cell phone and try and dial 911? Or are you going to hand that to your wife and get down the side of that mountain and do what you can with a person with a compound fracture who's bleeding out in front of you? These things happen. And I, I hope that the listeners never have to literally risk it all, but it will happen more than you think. And the purpose of the book, in addition to telling some history and, and, and laying out some, some remarkable stories of men and women under those circumstances, but the real point of the book is to help people prepare in case we talked about dice a little earlier, in case yeah. those dice land on you and you have to risk it all. So you've commanded these billion-dollar ships, 340 sailors. What was your moment? What would you say of all the moments, and you, you, you've, you've, you've been in war situations, what would you say your crisis moment was? Um, this one may or may not surprise you, but it was not a moment of physical danger. Um, certainly have encountered that along the way. Um, but I'll give, you, I'll give you two moments that stand out for me in, in my career. One is when I was uh, fairly young, in my 30s, I was the what's called the tactical operations officer on a cruiser. And uh, we were in the Persian Gulf, and we had um, what we thought were Iranian aircraft coming at us. I had the firing keys. I was prepared to make that decision to launch missiles. Um, something in the back of my mind made me hold back from doing that. It turns out it was an Iranian civilian aircraft. Um, several months later, the cruiser Vincennes, a different tactical action officer, made a different decision and inserted that firing key, and we killed 100, we, the Navy, killed 150 innocent Iranians flying across the Arabian Gulf. Um, all of that occurred under Iranian missile cover with Iranian jets in the air. It was a complex situation. I made the right choice. Other tactical action officer did not. That's always rattled around in my head. The other one, Donnie, is flash forward. Now, probably due to a computer error, I've become a four-star, and I am the commander of U.S. Southern Command, charge of everything south of the United States. And our job, one of our many jobs, is to try and rescue three hostages, three contractors, defense contractors, who had been held by the FARC in captivity in the jungle for years. And my special operations team came to me and said, 
Admiral, we've got a bead on these guys. We can go in there and get them. And I was excited to try and rescue them. At the same time, I was very mindful of the high risk of, of, of the, the hostages being shot uh, by the FARC. Generally, uh, captors in those situations have plans. You know, if they hear shots coming into the camp, they immediately put two mm-hmm. bullets in the head of the hostage. So I, 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 I dithered. I couldn't decide. I couldn't pull the pin. I finally got myself to the position where, okay, we'll take this risk. And I called my special operations team and said, okay, we're going to go. And it was too late. We'd missed the window. And so those captives spent most of another year in captivity. The happy ending to the story is they were ultimately rescued by the Colombians. The Colombian military figured out a very clever scheme to get them out of there. We helped. We were kind of the back office. But I often think about that moment, Donnie, where I wasn't risking my own life personally, but I I held the, the lives of those three hostages in my hands. Could we have gotten them out of there sooner if I had moved with more alacrity in my decision making? I think so. Um, fortunately, eventually they were rescued. But there are two examples. And Again, you don't have to be in the military to hit moments like sure. that where you have to decide. What The parallel of those two moments was risk management. Uh, and even the second one that you are saying that, oh, I wish I had, still in hindsight was the right call because we don't know what the other outcome would be. And so, yes, they spent another year, but they got out safely, which which was the game. So it, 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 it came down to your assessment of risk management in both cases. It, it was right. Something that you talk about that my dad taught me early on is you, the key to being a leadership is that you treat, everybody treats the president a certain way. You know, how do you treat the guy operating the elevator? You know what I mean? And that you treat everybody the same and that everybody manages up and knows how to do that. And it's the real winners are the people that know how to manage down and, and know, how, I don't want to use those words, manage down, but know how to, the, the power of every individual and respecting that power and understanding it and giving them a sense of purpose and a sense of sense of esteem. And I, that's, I, your words were almost identical to my dad's. Well, you and I have uh, many things in common, but in particular, uh, we both deeply looked up to and admired our fathers. And my dad was a colonel in the U.S. Marine Corps, so I grew up in the Marine Corps. And he made that point to me over and over again, Donnie, was, um, you know, it's great to make sure the general knows you're doing a good job, but you've really got to spend time with everybody. And and my father would always say, um, no anger. Get anger out of anything you do, because an angry officer, he used to say this, an angry officer is only putting more chaos in the situation. The job of an officer is to bring order out of chaos. And to do that, you respect everybody on the team. And I learned that from my father. And I'll tell you one other thing um, that he beat into my head, which was, again, we all know you got to be loyal. You got to do the right thing for your boss. You want to make your boss look good. Um, and you, as we just talked about, you really want to take care of your, your shipmates who are junior to you in, in rank. But here's the other thing my father taught me, Donnie, was pay attention to your peers. Pay attention to your peers. Your peers know you better than anybody. Your peers can give you honest feedback. Your peers 
can save you. And boy, I've been saved from my mistakes many, many times by, you know, the commander on the next destroyer over who might've said, hey, Jim, you're getting a little out ahead of your skis on point A, B, or C. Listening to your peers is another great lesson of leadership that I took from my father. Yeah, you talk about that kind of, that peer camaraderie and how it bailed you out of one of your most embarrassing situations when, when your, your boat went afoul. And uh, why don't you tell that story? I love that story. Uh, so I'm Commander Stavridis. I'm, you know, 36 years old, maybe 37. And my ship, I'm the captain of this warship, about 350, 360 sailors. Is this the Barry? It is the USS okay. Barry, brand new, beautiful ship. And um, we're doing great. We are just kicking it on the waterfront. We're uh, winning all these awards and contests. And I will tell you, I kind of started to read my own press a little too much. So then comes this big engineering inspection. The inspectors come aboard. We get the ship underway. We get out to sea. I don't want to drag you through all the details, but we failed the inspection. We had a miserable uh, material casualty, something really major on the ship broke down. It was terrible. The ship is literally out there at sea, and we are so uh, broken down that the inspector said, we don't think it's safe for you to operate your own engines to go back and port. We're going to tow you back. Now, that is the most humiliating thing that can happen to a captain and a ship. And we got towed back into San Diego Harbor with in front of every other ship on the waterfront. And, you know, finally we got tied up at the pier. I went home that night. I said to my wife, Laura, it's all over. Tomorrow morning, the Commodore is going to come to the ship and fire me. And because that's what happens when you fail one of these big inspections. Uh, the next morning, uh, I learned three things. Number one, the Commodore came and he said, Stavridis, wow, really bad day. But, you know, you've done a lot of good things. We're going to give you another chance. We're going to let you take that inspection again in 60 days. You're not going to get an outstanding. You're not going to get an excellent, but you still have a chance to pass it. He gave me a second chance. The next thing that happened is, my sailors, I thought I would have to go in and kind of pump them up. All day that, that next day, my sailors came up to me and they would pat me on the back and say, hey, Captain, we got this. We can fix this. And it, it, back to the point you and I made about what our fathers taught us, that's the investment when you need to withdraw from the bank. That's the investment that you made. And the third thing is what we just talked about. It's your peers. And all day, that next day, other destroyer captains were calling me and saying, hey, staff, terrible day. Man, ship looked bad getting towed in, you know, and they kind of stick it to me. But then they would say, what do you need? Do you need parts? Do you need my master chief to come over and help your team? Uh, What can we do to help you? Boy, that was a powerful moment for me. And it, it really talks to the three vectors of leadership, your boss, your sailors, and your peers. Great story. I want to ask you about fear. And uh, you, you, sure. fear is a motivator. And fear, we, we learn from our failures in, in, in more than we do our successes. But I sit here and talk to you when you're in these life and death situations. And you've written about them in the, in the new book. Let me mention the book again, To Risk It All, Nine Conflicts and a Crucible of Decision. Were you ever afraid? 
And how do you manage that? You're, you're, I mean, we, we see guys like you and we're kind of like, okay, there, and we watch the movies, you know, and we, yeah. we watch Crimson yeah. Tide and we, we, and, and, and we never get to see the fear factor yeah. and forget that these are humans and they're in a uh, life and death situation. So talk to me about fear, embracing it, managing it. Yeah. Um, yes, I have been afraid many, many times. And anyone who tells you they are not afraid in the, if you will, the crucible of combat, I think is just whistling past a graveyard or trying to brand themselves. You're the king of branding. I, I think that um, a better brand is, yeah, I'm worried and I'm scared. And I wrote a book called Destroyer Captain about my second year in command of a destroyer. And I, I grapple with that at many points. And by the way, it's not just fear of an Iranian missile. Um, there's a significant fear of failure for all of us. Whether you're running a company or working at a shoe store um, or driving a destroyer as the captain, everyone wants to succeed and they fear failure. And so I remember when I was walking down the pier to take command of the USS Barry, I was scared. I was nervous. Was I going to live up to this? Was I going to be a good captain? Could I drive the ship through combat and through getting it to the pier and underway? And, and so anyone who uh, tells you that, that the captain is this uh, massive uber figure who feels no fear, I just, that, that wasn't my experience and I don't think it's true. But your point is correct. We don't write about that or think about it or talk about it enough. And as we come out of these forever wars, my hat is off to a growing number of senior and mid-grade officers who have talked about fear and have spoken about um, the impact. So the important thing in this conversation is not, you know, is Jim Stavridis afraid or, or anybody else? The important thing is, your point, how do you manage it? And I think you manage it with kind of three things. One is your shipmates on either side of you. You know, the, the Greeks used to say, the ancient Greeks, would say that on a battlefield, the opposite of fear is not courage. The opposite of fear is love. It's love for your shipmates. And part of managing fear on a battlefield or fear in any entity, it's back to that peer group piece. Yeah. It's, it's the comfort you derive and the motivation you have that everything comes through. Number two, this will sound incredibly prosaic, but I think it's important in any high-stress combat or high-stress in civilian life situation, you got to be fit. You need to be in good shape. I believe that, yeah. You need to find time to sleep. We say on a battlefield, sleep is a weapon. In other words, if you are not getting enough sleep, you have to find a way to do so. Um, and, and you've got to eat well. You've got to keep the machine in an even keel because... Um, all of those fears and insecurities become more manifest if the machine gets run down. And then third and finally, preparation and practice and training and putting as much stress as you can and do as much preparation, both intellectual and physical, that can give you confidence in these very tense situations. We Again, we say in the military, if you want to avoid bleeding in war, you've got to bleed a little bit in training. 
meaning you've got to you've got to feel a lot of pain and and really push yourself to the edge and put everything in extreme situations. And I think that's true in the world of business, doing a stress test, running a big bank, or uh, thinking through what could happen as as the cryptocurrencies collapse. Um, all of that preparation, physical fitness, admitting the challenge, but seeking to overcome it and working with your peer group. I think those are the keys, Tony. You've been so generous with your time. I'm going to ask you one final question. I, having read about you, I think I know what the answer is going to be. What's the James Stavridis brand? <laughs> I hope the Stavridis brand is um, thoughtful, sense of humor, military background, but above all, somebody who cares about others and um, is someone who is kind to others. And I've made many, many mistakes in my life, but I, I defy you to find anybody who could say, Jim Stavridis screamed at me, Jim Stavridis called me a knucklehead. And that's not because I'm trying to be Mary Poppins or Albert Schweitzer. That's because it's counterproductive. I'll close with a line from the greatest book of leadership, which, as you well know, of course, is The Godfather by Mario Puzo. And among many other quotable statements in there is the phrase, don't make the mistake of hating your enemies. It clouds your judgment. That is a pretty good line to keep in mind. And, and since I'm, I'm quoting, I'm going to give one more because it's a short out. It's a shout out for short people everywhere. Donnie, as you know, I'm a towering five feet, five inches tall. So I love to quote Napoleon. Okay. Napoleon said, and this really would be the heart of my brand, I hope. Napoleon said, a leader is a dealer in hope. A leader is a dealer in hope. Not in fear, not in yelling, not in screaming. I love that. Not in lies, not in misinformation. A leader is a dealer in hope. I hope that's my brand. I love it. Admiral, the book is To Risk It All, Nine Conflicts and the Crucible of Decision. Um, you are, as I said, what a privilege it was to talk to you today. Thank you, sir. I really appreciate it. It was my pleasure, sir. You stay well, okay? You too, sir. Thank you. Bye. Hope you enjoyed today's show. Uh, talking to the Admiral was a real privilege. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe anywhere you get podcasts. Uh, Shopify, Apple, any place. And please rate, review, or subscribe. And also watch our videos on YouTube. You can also subscribe there. And please leave us your comments. Great talking to everybody. We'll see you guys next week on Audrey. Hi, this is Jim Jeffries. I have a podcast out called I Don't Know About That. Each episode is a different subject. We bring an expert on and I say everything I think I know about that subject. And then they correct me. Join in, listen to the podcast, you'll have a laugh and you might learn something. Follow, rate and review. I Don't Know About That with Jim Jeffries. Now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to listen. You can also catch video releases each week on YouTube.